my name is Nick Lowe. I'm a Ngaitahu author. And with me, I have two uh, spectacular guests. I've had the privilege to hang out with you guys over the last couple of days and uh, uh, get to know a little about uh, their lives. So just before we get underway, your phones are all on silent, I take it? Yes, very good. And uh, I'd also like to thank the uh, supporters and sponsors of this city, which are, of course, the Christchurch City Art Gallery, this fabulous venue that is hosting us, and the organization which has the name most likely to resemble a tongue twister. I'd like you all to repeat after me, the Christchurch City Council Sister City Program. <laughs> <laughs> On my left, Ellie Kobe Ekin. This is a great part in the session because I get to say nice things about them and they get to blush. <laughs> So Ellie recently toured Ireland in 2013 as Australian Poetry Ambassador. She won the Kenneth Slesser Prize for Poetry. She's the inaugural recipient of the Tunka Nunka Pintianti Fellowship. She attended the Iowa Writing Program in 2014. Her memoir, Too Afraid to Cry, and her poetry collection, Inside My Mother, appeared last year. Please welcome Ellie. And Alyssa, Alyssa Washuta, is a member of the Cowlitz Indian tribe, the author of the memoir Starvation Mode, and My Body is a Book of Rules. She teaches at the Department of American Indian Studies at the University of Washington and the MFA program at the Institute of American Indian Arts. Her work has appeared in Salon, The Chronicle of Higher Education, BuzzFeed, and elsewhere. Welcome there, Alyssa. <laughs> So these two writers may or may not be known to you. Some of you will have read their books, seen their works, seen their articles around the internet, heard them speak before. For others, this will be the first time that you've heard them. So I thought that a really nice way to kick it off would be to ask them to read <clears throat> just a, a few minutes of their words. Thank you, Nick. Um, in Australia, we have a protocol which is um, acknowledgement of country, and I would like to acknowledge the traditional people of this, of this land, of this place that we're in, um, pay respects to ancestors past and present, and uh, thank the spirits for bringing me here to share my words. I'm going to read um, a poem that sort of, uh, I think, cemented my, um, my voice in the literature trails when I was at Tichikala in uh, 2006, the federal uh, government launched a, uh, a racial um, policy. I say it was a racial policy because they actually um, uh, removed the anti-discrimination law to pass the policy and then put the anti-discrimination law back in a watered-down version um, after it was legislated. It's commonly known as intervention. And um, I was living out there and the men were really frightened to stand up um, and talk to the government. And, I, you know, I'm always for self-empowerment. And I said, yeah, you fellas should really um, speak up. And they said, we don't know what the next trick is. We might be taken in the middle of the night. Can you speak up for us? So I wrote this poem. I love my wife. She writes skin for me. Pretty one, my wife, young one, found her at the next community over, across the hills, little bit long way, not far. And from there, she give me good kids, funny kids mine. We always laughing all together. And that wife, she real good mother, 
make our wally real nice, flowers and grass patch and chickens. I like staying home with my kids. And from there I build cubby house, yard for the horse. See, I make them things from leftovers, from the dump, all the leftovers from fixing the houses. And all the leftovers, I build cubby house and chicken house. And in the house we teach the kids, don't make mess, go to school, learn good so you can work round here later. Good job, good life, and the government will leave you alone. And from there, Jamo and Nana tell them the story when the government was worse. Rations. Government made up all the rules, but don't know culture. Can't sit in the sand. Oh, Jamo and Nana, they got the best stories. We always laugh in us, mob. And from there, night time when we're all asleep, all together on the grass patch, dog and cat and kids, my wife and me, them kids, they ask really good questions about them olden days about today. Them real ninty, them kids. They're going to be right. And from there come intervention. John Howard, he make new rules. He never even come to see us. <clears throat> How good we was doing already. Mal Bruff, he come with the army. We got real frightened, true. Thought he was going to take the kids away. Just like Jummel and Nana been tell us. I run my kids in the sandhills. Took my rifle up there and sat. But they was all just lying, changing their words all the time, wanting meeting today and meeting tomorrow. We was getting sick of looking at them, so everyone put their eyes down, and some even shut their ears. And from there I didn't care too much, just kept working, fixing the housing, being happy, working hard, kids go to school, wife working hard too, didn't care too much. We was right. We always laugh and us mob altogether. But then my wife comes home crying, says the money in quarantine. But I didn't know why they do that. We was happy, not drinking and fighting. Why they do that, we asked the council. To stop the drinking and protect the children. Hey, you know me, you bloody mongrel, I don't drink and I look after my kids. I'll bloody fight you, you say that again. Hey, settle down, we're not saying that. Mal Bruff's saying that. Don't you watch the television? He making the rules for all the mobs, every place, Northern Territory. He real cheeky white fella, but he's the boss. We gotta do it. And from there I tell my wife she gets paid half. Half in hand, half in the store. Her money's in the store now. Half and half. Me too, all us building mob. But I can't buy tobacco or work boots. You only get the meat and bread, just like the mission days just like Jummo and Nana tell us. And from there I went to the store to get meat for our supper, but the store ran out, only tin food left. So I asked for some bullets. I'll go shoot my own meat. But sorry, they said, you gotta buy food. That night I slept hungry and I slept by myself thinking about it. And from there the government told us our job was finished. The government been give us the sack. We couldn't believe it. We've been working CDEP for years. Slow way, park the truck at the shed, just waiting for something, for someone with tobacco. The other men's reckon, fuck this, drive to town for the grog. But I stayed with my kids, started watching the television, trying to laugh, not to worry, just to be like yesterday. And from there the politician man says, I'll give you a real job. 
tells me to work again, but different. Only half time, 16 hours. But I couldn't understand. It was the same job as before, but more little, less pay. And my kids can't understand when they come home from school why I can't buy the lolly for them like I used to before. I didn't want to tell them. I get less money for us now. And from there they say, my wife earns too much money. I'm going to miss out again. I'm getting sick of it. Don't worry, she says. I'll look after you. But I know that's not the right way. I'm getting shame. My brother, he's shamed too. He goes to town drinking, leaves his wife behind, leaves his kids. And from there I drive to see Jamal. He says his money in the store too. Poor bloke. He can't even walk that far. And I don't smile. I look at the old man. He lost his smile too. But Nana, she cooked the damper and kangaroo tail. She trying to smile. She always liked that. And from there, when I get home, my wife gone to town with a sister-in-law. She gone look for my brother. He might be stupid on the grog. He not used to it. She got to find him. Might catch him with another woman. Make him bleed. Drag him home. And from there, my wife, she come back real quiet. Tells me she went to casino. Their mothers took her, taught her the machines. She lost all the money. She lost her laughing. And from there, all the kids been watching us, quiet way, not laughing around. So we all go swimming down the creek. All the families there together. We're happy again. Them boys, we take them shooting, chasing the malu in the car. We're real careful with the gun. Not going to hurt my kids. No way. And from there, my wife, she's sorry. She back working hard, saves the money. Kids going to get new clothes. I'm going to get my tobacco and them bullets. But she gone change again, getting her pay, forgetting her family, forget yesterday, only thinking for town with a sister-in-law. And my wife, she got real smart now. Drive for miles all dressed up, going to the casino with them other congas for the Wednesday night draw. I already told you, I love my kids. I only got five. Two have passed away already. And I'm not complaining about looking after my kids. No way. But when my wife gets home, if she spent all the money, not going to share with me and the kids, I might hit her first time. I wanted to uh, read this poem too, um, it's titled Black Deaths in Custody and um, just pay respects to uh, another family who have lost another life in the jail in Darwin over the weekend. Despite the cost, a new jail has been built. It seems the incarceration rates are trebling. I only came here in the role of a desk in custody inspector. All the cells are stark and spotless. Blank screens watch from the corner. The officers have the highest technology. The faces of the staff all look the same. When I walk down this wing and peer into this filthy room, the door closes behind me. The feeling in my heart is changing 
from a proud strength of duty to fear. All the stories I have ever heard stand silent in the space beside me. A coil of rope is being pushed under the door of this cell. Thank you, Ellie. Thank you. So many questions springing up from that, but I'm going to hold them for mm -hmm. a minute. And Alyssa, please. Klahawia, Nike Nam, Alyssa Washuda, Nike Telecom, Cowlitz, Nike Seeks, Ayamasi, Nike Naitahu, Ayamasi, Masi, 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 Kopa, Nike Tam Tam. My name is Alyssa Washuda, my tribe is Cowlitz. To all my friends, many, many thanks. To Naitahu, many thanks for um, welcoming he me here and happy to be on your land. And thank you so much to everybody from my heart. Um, I'm going to read, I think, a bit of an excerpted version of an essay that's um, was in BuzzFeed, so it lives in here in my little phone. <laughs> And this is kind of an angry, I mean, it's a very angry essay. I assure you, I'm, I think I'm a pretty sweet person, but um, some things, you know, things happen to us that make us angry. And uh, I wrote this in, uh, um, in an afternoon after um, somebody came to my office and treated me inappropriately. So this is called, This Indian Does Not Owe You. I am here before you, a living Indian upright and animated, full of blood. I am a young Cowlitz woman, not one of the dead chiefs flattened into history books. I've come to expect that you may want to know what an Indian knows and feels. You may want to enroll before me your knowledge about Indian wars or toss out a fun fact about totem poles. Conversational niceties, perhaps, attempts at connection, fair enough. No, though. If I have no response, it is because I have only a few inches of innards left to pull out for examination. I must place some limits so that I might keep myself intact. I do not owe you a complete breakdown of my ancestry. I do not keep a blood quantum chart sketched out on my palm like crib notes for an exam. I do not have to tell you where my mother was born or what substance forms my father. I don't have to justify the place of my birth, necessarily off-reservation, because at the time of my birth, my tribe had none. All of our land taken from us. I cannot stop you when your gaze searches my face, gouges out my eyes, and roughs up my cheekbones, but I don't have to respond when you offer your assessment. I don't measure my blood in pints and quarts, and I will not spill it at my feet for you. I do not owe you my assistance with your search for the Indians. You're sure you'll find buried somewhere in your ancestry, the ones from tribes and places you can't name, specters skittering between generations, a rumor or a wish. When you refuse to copy down the contact information for the museum that will work to repatriate the ancient Indian artifacts you say you got for a steal at a yard sale, do not be surprised when I say I know no galleries that might offer up cash for your goods. I do not owe you advice on how to sell the bones you dug out of your garden. 
I do not owe you the long hair that confirms your expectations or the short hair that defies them. I do not have to let you touch it. I don't even have to let you witness it, and yet you do see it. The hair that was two inches long when I came to this place where every woman in line before me was born. The hair that has grown as long as it can, skimming my waist. The hair that is getting limp under the weight of trying to insist upon what my pale scalp cannot. When you quiz me on genocide highlights, were those smallpox blankets real? I've always wondered about that. To sate your hunger for facts, I do not owe you a free education of the kind that my university students pay for, and I am not so flattered by your interest in my people that I might unfurl a lecture on 500 years of colonization for your edification. I don't owe you commentary, desk punditry, or afternoon anger. I don't want to let you play devil's advocate over casinos or feed you arguments about team names that you can pull out at happy hour. But I won't tell you either about the burn that runs up my spine, the rape of native women from sea to sea, from the first metal clash of conquest to each passing second. In the U.S., one in three native women have been raped or have experienced attempted rape. When you are in a room with me, know that I am one raped woman. And though I owe you nothing, I've been broken into, broken down, and broken in over time. If you are a stranger in my otherwise empty office at the end of the day, I just might give you leads tracking down the Indian enrollment card you've been coveting if it gets you to leave. I am not here to weigh in on the authenticity of the sweat lodge retreat weekend you paid for in the 90s. I am not invested in your personal search for meaning, but I was raised to treat others as I want to be treated. How I want to be treated, not like a cabinet full of curiosities, not like a magic lady who waves her hands over your wounds and heals you of your ignorance. You can keep your wounds. I keep mine. I do not owe you gratitude for your love of our ways, our art, our peaceful nature. Love is not consumption. Love is generous. Love is action. And violated bodies and homelands can do nothing with unfocused appreciation. Whether you're learning your new fact for the day or admiring the print on my office wall, you have the privilege of consuming and walking away. You can discard the printouts from my website you brought to my office after you leave with what you came for. A look at what Irish, French, Ukrainian, and Indian looks like. You can scroll across the blip on your Facebook feed about the overrepresentation of Aboriginal women among the totals of murdered and missing women in Canada. Even if you think it's a tragedy, you can click the X and walk away. Whether you believe it or not. I'm Indian every day. When you tell me that you would have done something if you had been alive back then, I don't disagree. But I don't say that. I know that it's true. You might have done something, but maybe not what you'd like to think you'd do. When you tell me it's too bad we were all annihilated, I owe you nothing. But still, I am giving you more knowledge than you deserve when I say. I can't help you. Push, Kakwa.
Coming from that, I am going to just completely segue from the notes and say, <laughs> where does anger sit with you? How does anger work in your work and in your world? Um, that's an interesting question. I don't think of myself as a very angry person. Um, I don't. I don't experience a lot of anger. Uh, I don't probably even get angry every day. Um, but I, I do like to think that the page is a safe place to put my anger when I do experience it, because otherwise it's just gonna it's gonna burn burn my insides, you know. Um, and I like to think that I can, uh, you know, I, I think that that writing one of the most powerful effects of writing is that we get to see what it's like inside another person and you know I like I said in the essay you know I was raised to treat people as I want to be treated I was raised to be very polite um I um and I'm you know if if something upsets me I honestly I might not say anything um but but I'm gonna write about it um that's that's the way that I can make it useful. Do you have a temptation to send the link of what you've written to the person that might have sparked the uh, experience? I Well, <laughs> maybe. But, you know, the person that sparked... Well, there are two people who I kind of mentioned in the essay who sparked that essay who came to my office, American Indian Studies at University of Washington, and, you know, one person said he wanted to get a look at me, wanted to get a look at what that looks like, being all those things. And uh, the other person demanded five minutes of my time to do his genealogy. And I was like, oh, that's that's for tribes to help you with. That's not our area. And there was a little bit of aggression there. So I, you know, I, I locked our office door. I protected myself um, from from that, and uh, but, but put it onto the page. So, you know, that those individuals will probably never see it. But, you know, hopefully someone else can can benefit from it, I hope. Yeah. Ellie, what about you? Where does anger sit in your work? You know, when I <clears throat> found my family and then I spent the 10 years out in the desert with the, with the old congas, the old women, I was so relieved to learn that there's a good anger and a bad anger <laughs> because my life was becoming consumed by bad anger um, from being adopted, being raped as a child, standing up to that person, being run down by a car, my long hair being cut off in the hospital. So by the time I was eight years old, um, I was quite a different kid. Mutilated dolls. I sat there with my Yvonne Gilligan tennis racket. She was like the only Aboriginal person that we um, had as a, as a mentor and a star and that everyone seemed to like, um, sitting there trying to keep my space in the world. And and then running away from um, home at 17, coming back two years later with my tail between the legs and the church convincing my adopted parents that um, I wasn't the right person to keep my firstborn and only born child. So um, I had to learn about good anger and about how you stand strong in yourself to stop atrocity and to... Um, I think 
the good anger helped a lot of um, like you know that cathartic process, and the writing came out of that. I too think I'm better known for my kindness than my anger, but I warn people: don't ever push me back into that old place because it is still there, and I'm really scared. I don't want to go back. I want to keep moving through my life to the healing, and um, and so uh, the good anger probably doesn't come in my voice, but it's almost like I have to prompt myself to stand and say no, I don't agree with that, um, or you know, and I had to practice it in front of the mirror. I had to write mm. down all these lines because it wasn't a dialogue that I'd known. I'd grown up in a very strong Christian family and, um, and I still say that my immediate family, they weren't Christian hypocrites. They still practiced what they um, um, believe um, and were very kind and we were brought up with all that sharing. You know, I, I, I know the Ten Commandments probably better than most people that tick Christianity on the census. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, um, I really like that, what you're saying about good anger and bad anger. And I think about in our communities, you know, um, and this was true of me too, uh, um, for a long time, we we have that bad anger and we, what do you do with it? A lot of us just um, destroy ourselves from the inside out, you know, with, with drugs and alcohol and um, because there's like that bad anger is so... Um, you know, it's just so embedded in us, and we are told that, you know, that's all in the past, that's not happening anymore. You know, that was that was hundreds of years ago, you know, get over it. We're told to get over mm. it so often. But the reality is that, you know, in, in our communities in North America, you know, we are experiencing ongoing colonization every day, all the time. Um, you know, we are, we are still a colonized people, um, peoples, you know, hundreds of communities and cultures, and so, you know, for, for a long time I did, you know, try to deal with that bad anger by burning it out of me with alcohol, you know, and um, that's not healthy. The page is, is healthy, you know, taking it to the page is healthy. I, and I share the things that happened to me in my childhood um, because that is the story of hundreds and hundreds of young Aboriginal girls that were adopted in um, Australia. It's not just my story. It was shocking to even meet aunties when I was finding my family who had that. So it's generational, um, and um, and I and um, and I think you know um, the the drugs and alcohol um, syndrome after walking out of the hospital and leaving that little baby behind. Um, you know, I was very good at drugs and alcohol. Um, yeah, and, um, and 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 the clown. But the reason that um, that I left home and ran away from my adopted family because I'd been brought up in um, in in a, um, in a in a strong faith, <clears throat> I couldn't bear the hurt in my mother's eyes. We don't want to hurt hurt anyone else, and so with that as ad, and you know, and then when I met my um, cultural family, that is embedded in our DNA, and so. It, if we are so conditioned by our ancestry not to hurt other people, we can only implode. Well, writing is, a, is a, another option mm -hmm. from imploding. You used the word healing before. 
and that I mean, they seem like two poles, the healing and the anger, but is there a relationship between them? I think every poem that I write is healing. I hope um, hearing those two poems and a little understanding brings us together as a collective that we've taken a little step closer to healing that um, Indigenous people um, are seeking. Um, you know, I did a creative writing course at an Aboriginal TAFE in Alice Springs the year that my son was returning to me. I signed the paperwork on his 18th birthday and, I don't know, four months later he was arriving on the on the aeroplane. And I had, I, well, listen, I, had a, I remember standing at the airport and watching people getting off the plane and I had a thousand emotions. I, know that I must have looked... Um, weird because the air hostess kept coming up and saying are you okay um, and um, for my benefit I, I did that creative writing course as the way of getting it out because um, uh, you know I was sort of clean off drugs and alcohol I um, I wanted to I was going to be a mother my god um, to an 18 and a half year old son with no preparation um, in that 18 years that I'd, that I'd um, waited. I couldn't be really around babies because I, I just felt like vomiting. Um, and, um, you know, um, it, was the, it was the best thing that I could do. I could never have um, foreseen that a writing career would come out of it. Um, one little whoopsie when he said, oh, Mum, do you want to go and get a carton? Yes. <laughs> we sat around the campfire and had a few beers. Yeah, that was that was fun. Whereabouts did writing enter into it for you, Alyssa? When did writing become a way of channeling your experience? I think it, you know... I mean, just, I started writing in... Uh, when I was in high school and was writing in college, um, I didn't have anything to really heal from in a, at a very deep level at that point, you know. Um, they, there was a lot of frustration of the kind I expressed in that essay, but um, it wasn't until college when, you know, after I was raped, I, I, I started writing about it and I didn't, it was like writing for no, I didn't see what the purpose was. I was just doing it because I didn't know what else to do. I was so scared. Um, and, you know, I, I switched to nonfiction writing a couple years later from fiction. And I, for a long time, I resisted the idea that writing was therapeutic because people, people minimize memoir writing, calling it navel-gazing, saying, you know, oh, writing that book must have been so therapeutic for you. And I would be like, no, I'm an author, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, I, uh, after, what, like 10 years of untreated PTSD, I went to, uh, went to a psychiatrist and he was like, you have done a lot of remarkable healing on your own by writing these books. And I was like, oh, damn, I guess, because <laughs> <laughs> no I was wrong. I guess writing is healing. But, you know, it, 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 makes, it makes sense because acknowledging, acknowledging pain um, is, is, a, is like, you know, to me, a fundamental beginning of healing. If you don't if you don't acknowledge the wound is there and just keep it exposed, it's going to get infected or something. It, you know, it, if you go to a doctor and the doctor doesn't doesn't acknowledge the wounds there, the doctor's not going to treat it. So I, I feel that way 
about writing about all the things I, I write about, you know, whether it's whether it's rape or mental illness or, um, you know, just uh, dispossession and disempowerment of, of indigenous people in my community. Um, I think the first step, you know, in regards to the, the latter is, uh, you know, we have been so, so often represented and misrepresented by by non-indigenous people. As soon as as soon as you know the the settlers reached North America, they they decided we're going to be taking this land, and so we're going to be killing everybody who's here, and that is inevitable. That was a decision that was made, and so you know they they said, well let's let's capture what we need to from these people by taking down their stories and creating you know works of art about them, and so you know they would the anthropologists would meet. Um, these, these elders and create uh, what they called life stories um, and you know take down their stories and sort of translate them and uh, for so long that's you know that's how that's how we were represented we weren't we weren't representing ourselves in writing for for a very long time um, and so you know now there's just so many more representations of native people by non-native you know, artists, whether that's film, you know, Dances with Wolves or, um, you know, Black Elk Speaks or, or whatever. And so I think, you know, my first step in, in trying to help my, my own community um, is, is showing what it's like from, from my individual Cowlitz Cascade perspective and showing that we're still here. We, we have always been here. Or there. I'm not there right now. I keep forgetting. <laughs> I don't make it off the continent very often. <laughs> I think we have a generation that has to put the emotion back into those anthropological oh, yeah. um, um, stories because when they were written by um, other people, I think the emotion uh, was, was left out and I think that's going to be the legacy of our generations. Mm. Yeah. Which raises a really interesting question of who are you writing for? Are you writing for your own people? Are you writing for a wider audience? Are you writing back to those anthropologists? Who's your audience? You know, I thought it was me, and then I thought it was, you know, the community where um, these people that had saved my life and given such quality to it were being treated so badly by the government. But um, over time, um, I think I'm writing for the future. I want my literature to be read in a hundred years so people know how much we've been pained. My, um, I think my audience is different with every essay or book or whatever. You know, my first book, My Body is a Book of Rules, is a sort of a memoir in essays. And when I was, you know, when I was really struggling in college, um, I... You know, I wanted to read books that would make me feel better, that would, you know, I wanted to see people like me on the page. And what I found was that, you know, I was struggling with so many things at once. You know, I'd been diagnosed bipolar, I'd been raped, I'd, you know, I had an eating disorder. Um, my, you know, I didn't know any other Native folks at college, and um, people were challenging my identity. And all these things were rolled up into one, and they felt like they were all completely interconnected. But when I went to look, you know, for memoirs, I would find a memoir about eating disorders, a memoir about rape, a memoir about mental illness, and nothing that, that really kind of reflected my own experience. So 
I, I wrote it for me for sure, but I also was hoping that you know I could give a gift to to other college students once it was done, um, and because I knew that there had to be other people like me, and there are for sure. Um, that essay I just read you, I think. I mean, I, I wrote that out of frustration, but I sort of I think my audience for that is probably you know other native native folks who have experienced the same thing in part, and then also to you know, I mean, I sent it to BuzzFeed imme immediately, so I kind of wanted wanted a broader audience than just us. And what happened when you did put that out there? I have a friend who says you plant a flag and people come to your banner, like you need to say what you need to say, and it brings people out of the woodwork. Has that been your experience? Yeah, yeah, that, um, well, when it first came out, People say don't read the comments on stuff like that, but the BuzzFeed policy is that they ask their authors to read the comments and respond to them. Um, at least that's how it was back then, and so I did, and oh, people were so mad at me. People were mad at me for using the word Indian, which is, you know, I I used it, um, it was on purpose, you know, it was a, it was a conscious choice. It's, uh, it's a problematic word that's also, you know, used by a lot of tribes, um, up, up and down the northwest coast in Washington. You know, my tribe's official name is the Cowlitz Indian Tribe. Um, and I, I don't really refer to myself as Indian, but um, anyway, there was a lot of anger about that. Um, and a lot of it, you know, people just trying to pick at little things to, to try to chip away at my legitimacy. Um, but I did, you know, I did find that it resonated with a lot of people who were tired, like me, of giving free education people. Um, what about you, Ellie? When you've written, what are the responses that have come back to you? I love it when um, I run into a girl at the service station who said, oh, Ellie, I'm reading your book. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, a lot of the sisters, um, my stolen generation sisters, have, um, because I wrote my memoir in... Um, in a way, not with specifics, it was like four voices of an emotional journey um, who just, you know, thanked me for that because their story could be embedded in it. Um, I've, I've been... Uh, I even got... Um, my, my latest, uh, last collection of poetry, I got my first um, fan letter, which <laughs> was really nice. Who was um, it from? A couple down the New South Wales uh, coast. Um, yeah, it's just this lovely letter that's in my treasure box. Um, and for me, the writing has allowed me to forgive myself and stand as an equal in Australia. Um, many of you may have have been there, and the stories of the of the the. the Tsunami of racism in Australia. I'm not sure if they've rippled over here, but that's how I feel about the country. And um, you know, uh, I think in my immediate surroundings, um, my writing has removed the denial that exists in that country and has allowed me wonderful friendships. Um, Everywhere I go to um, writers' festivals, you know, I'm meeting people um, uh, of all different backgrounds and stories and, um, and we're becoming friends. And that's all that's needed, I think, 
if there was friendship in policy and procedure towards Indigenous people, just if there was friendship embedded in it, we would be so much better off. We would all be better off. As part of those travels, you've actually had a role of being an ambassador, a poetry ambassador for Australia. And you speak of the tsunami of racism in Australia. Is there a tension between those things? How do you feel representing your country overseas? Well, I mentioned that in my other session. I feel a bit guilty about how much fun I have outside my own country. <laughs> because, <laughs> because I'm away for it, you know. And, um, God, who doesn't want to go to Ireland for a month? Um, yeah. The um, Irish. <laughs> The storytelling and the, and, and, the, and, the, and the friendship and the inclusion um, was, went to a little town in, um, in Listall um, and it was, it was just amazing. Um, the inclusion, I left a copy of um, Ruby Moonlight on the bar and within days, it's just been, it's a, it's a quick read, it's, um, I'll give a little plug, it's a verse novel. Um, this is the American cover. Um, I don't have a copy of the Australian cover. That's in the bookshop. It's um, something that I wanted to write because every place that I worked in with Indigenous youth in Australia and sitting with the elders, the first story they ever told was the massacre story. There's so many massacre stories. It's, um, it's, it's astounding how many different ways the colonialists thought to kill Aboriginal people. You could burn them, you could shoot them, you could chain them to rocks and watch the tide um, come in at Blackman's Rock. They even got the babies and buried them up to their necks and played polo with the heads. This just, you know, it was really shocking. And so again, I fictionalised this so that this story could sit in many different places. And it's about a young girl who survives the massacre of her entire family. Because what happens? We don't talk about it. We can barely get a plaque up um, to um, and, or a, any, any healing or acknowledgement. We can drive down the road and there's still a big sign that says Poison Waterholes Creek. So as an Aboriginal uh, woman driving past, I know that there's been a murder there. Shotgun Creek, um, Spear Creek, and you go and ask the locals, and that this the whole country is littered. So um, I've lost where I was going. Go wherever <laughs> you want to go. Yeah. I guess my question was really around bringing this history with you and going out into the world. And I'm assuming that when you're the Australian Poetry Ambassador, you're being funded by the Australian yeah. government. And it's really rewarding to go to other countries that know their history, are really well read and can respect our story. Again, in the friendship, I sat down and talked to the Irish. I talked to old IRA um, soldiers who were 19 when they said to their dad, we've got to go and, 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 um, and, and stand up for what we believe in. We'll be back in a year. And it took them 40 years to get home, you know, sitting there quietly in the pub and they're talking about the blood, blood on their boots. They're singing songs that made us cry. Um, instant friendship because they're not afraid of their history. Is America afraid of its history? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, like I said earlier, I think there's a lot of um, sentiment that it's over, it's in the past, get over it, 
we don't do that anymore. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, the narrative I think is, is pretty um, cheerful about the, the brave pioneers who crossed, who crossed the continent to, to, you know, create something out of the nothing that had been there. Um, which is not true at all, you know. The, the, the place where my family's from is, is um, a place of what we think of as incredible wealth. Our definition of wealth has to do with, you know, food, family, resources. Um, and it was, you know, before contact, an incredibly wealthy place full of salmon, cedar, elk, smelt, wapato, canvas, so many, you know, so much. And, uh, and you know, people saw it as a pristine, untouched wilderness when really people were touching it all the time. People were, you know, burning prairies in order to maintain them. People were, um, you know, doing doing all sorts of maintenance work. And uh, so I think since since the, the colonizers couldn't understand how the land was being used and how, you know, what respect and use, land, land use, land management looked like pre-contact, they couldn't see it. They didn't know what it looked like. And so they thought, you know, nothing was being done and that it was their, you know, it was their job to do something, their, their God-given responsibility. Um, and that, that narrative is still very much intact. You know, I'm thinking right now of the, the Oregon Trail, this idea that settlers came across in their wagons and, um, you know, and, and with this, these individual acts of bravery went over mountains and I played the Oregon Trail video game growing up uh, and uh, it's, you know, and I've played it again recently to, for purposes of writing about it. Um, and it's, it's very much romanticized and the thought is, you know, those, those Indians were there then and it's, it's, it's really nice that they helped the settlers to, to make the, you know, to, so that these pioneers could, could make something out of this um, super boring place. <laughs> <laughs> super boring. Super place. boring. Oh, yeah. Super boring. Um, the, I, I wonder if underlying that kind of thinking is a binary between the settler and the native, the kind of the, the, the colonial mm -hmm. person, the indigenous person, and I'm interested in your sense of whether those binaries still exist. Are there, do people bring expectations they meet an Aboriginal writer? How do they expect you to behave or mm -hmm. appear? And you know, what kind of expectations do people bring to it? And do you care? Okay. I think in the short time that I've been on the the, the circuit, they used to have really safe panels mm -hmm. where Aboriginal people would have maybe one. Um, session and it was really it would be it just felt really safe um some of you may have met Gemma burrell who's um attending she's the uh, director of the sydney writers festival it's people like Gemma that trusted me and so for the last three years she's given me one hour at the sydney writers festival i've had the pleasure of getting so many grassroots people onto the stage even if they're still, you know, living in the park or whatever. They're wonderful poets. <clears throat> They've, you know, they um, have big hearts. Poetry is supposed to change and inform lives. You should see 
the nervousness in the green room before we go on, and then the power of one hour of collectiveness afterwards. And I'm always going to be Gemma's friend for that. This year, we had two 10-year-old boys do the acknowledgement to country. And a little one-year-old girl whose mum was performing with me, stealing the show, just running, running amok. And, um, you know, being herself, it was, you know, she's, she's, she's one, she's part of our collective. It's not often we're even given that simple freedom. So, um, no, I don't... Um, I think the image is mine to own, that I remain centred, that I think about cultural protocol, that I remember what my grandmother taught me in such a short time. That's my focus, you know. The fact that... Um, and, and, and I have to do that because, you know, like, it's the logistics. Oh, one in three women is raped. We actually have to share our stories so that it becomes the impact. If there was 20 Aboriginal women uh, here, I think we would all share. We need to inform that it's not statistical, it's life lived. And when we share that knowledge, because it's not just happening in our community, I see a lot of women here, I know some are probably hiding sad stories too. We have empathy for that. We want to connect, we want to stand stronger, we want to be friends. Mm. And that's my focus when I travel. Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah. Alyssa, what's your feeling on that question? Um, I think that since I, you know, in my bios and whatever, out in the world I identify as a native writer because I am, you know, from a native community and I write. Um, there seems to sometimes be an expectation that in everything I'm going to kind of like explicitly draw the um, the Dances with Wolves connection or something, you know, about uh, how how this how I feel about this as a native person and like my my second book is um, Starvation Mode is about um, how like a lifetime of disordered eating and to me that is very much you know a native experience. I I come from people who you know who at one time followed a seasonal food round, you know, going up to the mountains for huckleberries at one time of the year, you know, getting salmon at one time, smelt, celery root, whatever. And um, the reservation system and treaty making um, completely disrupted that. And, it, you know, um, and just a few generations ago, starvation set in and food hoarding was, you know, became a thing in my, in my family, I, I think. I'm not sure, but... Um, and I, I see that that is the basis of, of you know disordered eating for me. So, but I don't I don't really go into that in the book. It's it's a short book. There wasn't just I just didn't go into it. I still think it's a native book. I'm a native person. I wrote it. Um, I had an essay come out I, I guess earlier this year um, about my dad's side of the family. My dad's white, and uh, his his uh, ancestors are anthracite coal miners in in Pennsylvania. They uh, you know, from Ireland, Eastern Europe, and um, I wrote about that, and I still think that that's, that's native literature, that's a native essay, because I'm native and I wrote it, I'm going to keep saying this, I guess, <laughs> and try to, I don't know. Um, I think there are expectations, you know, that I'm, that I'm going to 
deliberately wrangle that in and make sure everybody knows, but, you know, I know, I don't, you know, I, and, and there's things, there's also, you know, it, it's, I can write about my dad's family, you know, I, it's, it's something that's out there and that, you know, I think that he wants to see out there. Um, there's things about, I guess, what I think of as my native, you know, ceremonial life, I will never write about. I will never, ever write about the inside of the sweat lodge. Never, never, never. And, you know, maybe that's kind of the stereotypical, authentic native experience, but it is not accessible to anybody except for that lodge family. Never, never. For you, Ellie, are there things that you will never, never write about? Hmm. I don't know. Um, you know, we've just been hanging out with um, Ivan Coyote, who's um, really brave. I'm just um, blown away by that, that, that braveness. And I guess <clears throat> I've never really um, written about the drug and alcohol years. Um, there's probably bits of that that I'm not so um, proud of. But <clears throat> maybe I will to for people to understand why you do that to yourself. Um, this, you know, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm starting to uh, play more with essays, um, writing another verse novel, the sequel to Ruby Moonlight, and then I'm going to attempt my first novel. So um, that's more for me just to play as a writer. Um, you know, imagine winning a prize in every genre. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very competitive. I always have been. You had to be twice as good as anything as a, as a, a young Aboriginal person in um, in South Australia to even you know feel any equality. Um, so who knows? Other genres might uh, allow me to to write about things that I can't see what I would write about now. I see. Uh, we are, we've pretty much run out of time, but I'm going to just say we might have time for one, maybe two very quick questions. Uh, please keep them brief. Make sure they are questions. Uh, and, yeah, I think go to you first, and if we have time, we'll come to you. Okay, sure. Mm-hmm. For those of us who are colonizers, what is Blackfoot? <laughs> In less than one minute, go. <laughs> <laughs> when you know, when when Indigenous people are making art and you know and have contributions that are um, that we are putting out into the world, like I'll be honest, I'm just gonna say buy our books. Like seriously, <laughs> um, you know. And you know, there's all sorts of indigenous artists who are who are selling things and um, you know art and whatever. Um, I I think that when we are, you know, I I think that there's plenty of things that can be done. There's many things that can be done. But you know, as an artist, I'm saying I'm you know I'm putting this out into the world so that um, so that you know because I want to share it and. And because I want to enter into sort of, it's not really a dialogue, but I, 
I want I want that conversation to happen. And you know, same as an educator, I want you know people to to enroll in my classes. Um, this is where I am entering into a space of, of of sharing and giving. And I do want to share and I do want to give and want to connect with people. Um, and there are ways in which I have I have made that move. Um, and you know, welcome uh, welcome a response, I suppose. As an adult learning culture for the first time. I was 33 when I met my mum, so. Um, one of the um, pinnacle things that um, the old ladies recognised me, A, I had no patience, um, but they wouldn't talk to me for three days until the business goes out of you. And I had to learn to listen. And then when they were so happy, they were talking in language I couldn't understand anyway, because I you know, only knew English. And I think that's the key. Sometimes, don't expect the learning, but listen, don't talk. And when the learning comes from within, then we've all moved together. We don't practice that very much in the modern world. And, um, and I think you know, that's, that's the truth. We're, you know, if we were nasty people, we'd be using our black magic on you. <laughs> but we don't. So true. We, we, but we don't. And um, because I think we're waiting for the day that you understand that the learning's within you. We, and, and, and if you can listen to our ancient wisdoms, then we all grow stronger. Ellie Kobe Ekman, Alyssa Washuta, thank you very much. Thank you. And as is our as is our custom, uh, we would like to sing a waiate totoku in support of your uh, korero today. I think the best thing that comes out of sister city uh, relationships is to make wonderful sisters. <laughs> <laughs> and if you would like to see more, hear more, read more, uh, Alyssa and Ellie will be signing in the lobby. Thank you very much for coming. I'll see.